Welcome to another episode of France Ward's podcast series, Shoveling Smoke. I'm Mike Smith, your host for today's podcast. As we begin a new year of podcasts, I first wanted to take a minute to thank all of you who have listened to us in our first inaugural year. Chris Kaler and I, as well as the many attorneys at France Ward who have appeared with us, have really enjoyed sharing these episodes with you. In addition, I'm excited to report that Shoveling Smoke received a Vega Digital Award in the category of Law and Legal Services. This award recognizes and celebrates digital pioneer excellence in websites, video, mobile, social, animation, marketing, and podcasts. We share this award with Evergreen Podcasts, the podcast company that assisted us with the launch of our podcast and records and produces Shoveling Smoke. A shout out to the Evergreen team for helping us make this podcast an award-winning reality. We decided to ease into 2022 by talking about an issue that keeps cropping up in the media. With the conservative justices of the U.S. Supreme Court now in commanding control by a 6-3 margin, many Democrats have called for President Biden to expand the number of members of the court so as to create a more politically balanced or even a more liberal court. President Biden convened a committee and most of the committee members recommended against it. But the issue still keeps coming up. We thought it'd be interesting to talk about how court packing has been raised throughout the years to get an idea how this issue has played out over time and discuss how this might play out again in the present. Here with me to enlighten us on these issues is my partner and France Ward resident historian, Greg Farkas. Greg is a member of France Ward's litigation group, focusing his practice on business litigation and insurance coverage issues, as well as spearheading most of the firm's class action defense work. Greg also has great expertise on the attorney-client privilege and work product privilege, and has spoken many times on those subjects. When he's not bailing us out on privilege issues, Greg devotes a lot of his time to legal industry and community endeavors. Greg is chair of the Commercial Litigation Committee of the Ohio Association of Civil Trial Attorneys and works on several committees for the Defense Research Institute. Greg also has served on boards for Youth Challenge, the Heights Youth Club, and the Boys and Girls Clubs of Cleveland. He's a graduate of Cleveland Leadership Center's Cleveland Bridge Builders class of 2014. On a personal level, Greg's a voracious reader of history, an avid devotee of the NFL draft, and a proud dad of two sons. Hey, Greg, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Before we get going, let's talk about your NFL draft obsession for a minute, because I've known you for a long time, and it's something that's always been with you. So how did you become a devotee and... When you did, the draft wasn't really that big of a deal, was it? No, and I'm actually dating myself here because uh, my draft involvement predates the Internet. And at the time, there was very little information out there about the draft. And I was an undergraduate at Michigan State. I happened to be living in the football players' dorm, which was an interesting placement for a political science and econ major. And uh, there were players who were interested in, hmm, where might I be going? And I started following the NFL draft. And at the time, there were only three sources of information. There was Mel Kuyper, who was uh, – still around and still had the hair back then. And he published a blue book every year. Uh, and I have an entire shelf in my library of those blue books still. There was a guy named Joel Buchsbaum who was five foot four and wore glasses and never played sports in his life, lived in an apartment with his mother until his death, 
and filled up legal pads full of information about college football players. And they actually, one of the few things Art Modell ever did right in his life is that when Joel Buchsbaum passed, Art Modell had a moment of silence for him during the NFL draft because he was one of the originators in public interest in the draft. And back in the day, without the internet, you would watch games, we would circulate VHS tapes through the mail, and you would come up with your own draft ratings. Now, of course, there's so much information on the internet, like many areas of society, the problem isn't finding information, it's figuring out what information you can trust. Man, that's incredible how it's evolved over time, as the internet and social media have once again impacted the way we all live, right? Absolutely. And at the time, you could you either did your own work or you trusted one of a very few number of sources. Now there are so many sources, uh, you can find a, a source that will essentially support whatever position it is you want to take. Again, like many areas of our culture at the moment. Well, we're looking forward to see, uh, seeing you in Vegas in, in the uh, upcoming draft. So let's move on to court packing. Let's start with where everybody assumes you should start when you talk about the judicial branch of government, the U.S. Constitution. Does it actually say anything about what the court should look like? Well, I'll start with the phrase court packing, which gets some criticism in the literature for being a little bit pejorative. Particularly proponents of the idea like to refer to it as court expansion. But the concept, whatever you want to call it, really does not have a lot of grounding in the text of the Constitution. Article 3, which deals with the judiciary, only requires that there be a Supreme Court of the United States. It doesn't establish a specific number of justices for that court. And in fact, Article 3 doesn't even provide for lower courts unless they're established by Congress. Uh, The only court that's constitutionally required is the United States Supreme Court. And so Article 3, which deals most directly with the judiciary, doesn't address the subject. And so most constitutional analysis starts with Article 1 and what's known as, going back to our con law days, the necessary and proper clause. And that authorizes Congress to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution all other powers vested by this Constitution in any department. And that's generally, with some exceptions we'll talk about later, recognized is is providing the legislature with the power to establish not only lower courts, but set the number of justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. And with regard to the number of justices, can you give us a flavor of kind of how that's gone over time in terms of the numbers? Well, and it's changed considerably uh, up until about 150 years ago. Initially, there were six justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, and as difficult as it is to imagine in the current environment, uh, there was difficulty finding people to fill those seats because it was not considered either a particularly prestigious assignment, nor was it particularly financially lucrative for the justices. Uh, And so in the very early days of the Republic, there were problems filling those seats. Between the founding, 1789 to 1869, the number of justices varied anywhere from 5 to 10. The lowest number was 5, and that was the earliest sort of partisan example of court packing or court expansion. And it was actually a reduction of the original six justices down to 5, with the Federalists trying to hamstring 
Thomas Jefferson and prevent him from filling one of those vacancies. That only lasted a year, and when Jefferson's party took control of the Congress, they reset the number to six. And the last time the number changed was in 1869, and it was set at nine, and it has been nine ever since. So in terms of numbers or how it runs, is there any kind of um, historical record other than the actual Constitution that gives us some flavor as to how the at least the founders thought things were going to happen? There's a very little original intent as to the number of justices. And again, it's it's interesting how much the system has changed from the original constitutional structure, which again, didn't even provide for district courts or intermediate appellate courts. So most of the sort of originalist analysis goes back to the interpretation of that necessary and proper clause and what powers Congress is given to determine what is necessary and proper for the judiciary to function. So I guess we all sort of know, anybody who's studied history at all, to some degree, knows that things happened in the 30s where FDR was really considering uh, this seriously. And I assume that at that point in time, there was, you know, some study and some discussion about the constitutionality of expanding the court or packing the court. And other than that 1801-1802 reduction in the number of justices, the 1937 expansion, and that's when the term court packing was coined, uh, was really the first controversial change in the size of the court. Prior to 1937, most of the changes were based on the expansion in the number of of federal circuit courts in the country. Uh, The number of justices was tied to the number of circuits. Each justice was supposed to, quote unquote, ride circuit and was responsible for a specific circuit. As the number of those circuits increased, the number of justices increased. And really, that was not controversial because under, you know, both the plain language of the necessary and proper clause and as well as under the original intent of the Constitution, it was sort of seen that the number of justices was constitutionally within, you know, the power of the legislature and the executive to change. 1937 changed all that. And really the most interesting document and the one that's sort of come to the historical fore again with the more recent discussions of court expansion was that there was a 1937 Senate Judiciary Committee report that addressed both the constitutionality and the merits of court packing. And it's interesting to note that the Senate Judiciary Committee at that time was controlled by Roosevelt Democrats. So it was not a partisan issue. This was Roosevelt's own fellow Democrats in the Senate issuing a report as to their thoughts on court packing. And the report was absolutely scathing. Some of the quotes were that it applies force to the judiciary and in its initial and ultimate effect would undermine the independence of the court. It violates all precedents in the history of our government and would it itself be a dangerous precedent for the future? And the committee concluded that the proposal was, quote, without precedent and without justification. It would subjugate the courts to the will of Congress and the president and thereby destroy the independence of the judiciary, the only certain shield of individual rights. And that is a quote that came from Roosevelt's own Democratic Senate. And so now that court expansion or packing is back in the news, the modern arguments against the constitutionality of the court sort of stem from those concepts that the Senate Democrats raised in 1937. And so what are the 
kind of the practical objections about expanding the court? Well, there, there's practical objections and there's constitutional objections. And there's there's two constitutional objections. The first is that an expansion of the court would undermine the structure of the federal government. And going back to law school 101 or even really high school civics 101, we have the three branches of government. You've got the legislature, you've got the executive, and you have the judiciary, which is charged with interpreting the laws. The structural argument, going back to that Senate report, is that a Allowing court expansion would undermine the ability of the Supreme Court to serve as the ultimate interpreter of laws and the function of judicial review because the executive and the legislature could, when they disagree with the court, increase the number of justices to get the impact they want. The other argument on constitutionality goes back to that necessary and proper clause. And you have a group of scholars who now argue that it isn't proper to increase the size of the court to achieve a desired outcome in terms of the court's results. And what's kind of interesting about the modern debate is you look at conservative justices and you talk about originalism and you talk about reading the plain language of a statute. That would support court expansion. You now have conservatives arguing about what is proper or the structure of the Constitution and what is the intent of a statute and arguing positions somewhat different than their normal statutory or constitutional interpretations to come to the conclusion that it's not, in fact, constitutional. That's interesting. So you're starting to see some kind of result-oriented arguments to, to justify their, con- their positions. It almost is a reversal of the normal positions people take from a purely ideological or partisan perspective. And then to your point, there's also a host of practical objections that have been raised to court packing. One of the most important of which is, again, hearkening back to the 1937 Senate report, that there's a constitutional norm or understanding that for 150 years, this simply isn't something that we do. The judiciary is intended to be independent and that changing its composition to get a desired outcome violates sort of the rules of the game. And one of the serious challenges that was raised in the recent commission report was, you know, in an era of hyper-partisanship where a lot of those norms are already being challenged. Do we really want to or need to challenge yet another of them at the present time? How about some of the other practical objections that are out there? Well, there are two um, that also come to mind. One, of course, is you know sort of the infinite regression problem, that if you expand the court now to address what's considered a political imbalance at this point in time, when the dynamics shift, you'll simply have another expansion to redress the earlier one. Or going back to the 1801 or 1802 controversy, you may have a reduction in the number of justices. But again, coming to that constitutional norm, once you rip this Band-Aid off, how do you reapply it to prevent future adjustments to the composition of the court to achieve whatever outcome is desired by the majority at the time. And that also goes to the practical problem of the legitimacy of the court. Non-lawyers already think many judicial outcomes are determined by a person's political orientation rather than by the rule of law or precedent. And there is a real concern on on both levels of the ideological spectrum, that allowing for court expansion will exacerbate that concern and destroy whatever legitimacy 
the judiciary has. And that leads to a third consideration, which is, do we really have a problem that necessitates court expansion at this point in time? And it's interesting because depending on what polls you look at, the Supreme Court is the most trusted branch of the federal government. Now, that's perhaps not saying a lot, but from a polling perspective, the court is not necessarily suffering from a crisis of legitimacy that might warrant court expansion. And the other interesting facet of this is that when you look at the empirical evidence, and for the Supreme Court nerds out there, I strongly suggest the SCOTUS blog and the 538 blog. When you look at the actual composition of the Supreme Court decisions, it's interesting in that while we popularly perceive a 6-3 conservative supermajority, there are arguments based on the actual voting patterns that it's more like a 3-3-3 conservative block, liberal block, and a slightly conservative block that often votes with the other three. And that the actual compositions of the decisions, particularly the non-hyperpartisan decisions, really is far more nuanced and varied than the public perception is. It really is just a couple of issues, including affirmative action and reproductive rights, that seem to drive this narrative that we have a hopelessly ideologically divided court. That's interesting. And you really think about it, you know, the the one guy who comes to mind in that respect is Justice Gorsuch. I mean, everybody thinks that he is going to be on the quote-unquote conservative side of things. But if you look at some of his opinions, like his decision about the, uh, the rights of uh, Native Americans and uh, how he came to uh, write the opinion that gave them expansive uh, – rights or, you know, gave him back expansive rights. That's not something I think the uh, the typical conservative uh, group would have expected. No, and that's an excellent example because he's popularly perceived as being one of the three reliable conservative votes. And another interesting example is Roberts, who obviously in the Affordable Care Act decision provided the fifth vote to maintain that. And Justice Kavanaugh, again, considered conservative. In the 2018 October Supreme Court term, he voted as often with Justice Kagan at roughly approximately 80% as he did with Gorsuch. So there's a wide variety of voting patterns. And again, on issues that are not hyper-partisan, it's a far more varied mix of opinions than if you ask the general public that they would believe exist. Yeah. So have any of the uh, justices actually weighed in on the court packing thought? Well, and again, sort of defying the ideological perspective that's put on this, Justice Ginsburg in 2019 spoke out strongly against court packing. And she not only referenced the 1937 controversy, but she raised the concern about judicial review and the supremacy of the judiciary, that if you allow court expansion because you're dissatisfied with the court's results, you really do undercut the court's role as the final arbiter of what is constitutional or not. And even Justice uh, Breyer, whose upcoming retirement has sort of you know brought these issues back to the fore again, he spoke out in 2021 and said essentially that it, it, you are going to reinforce the view that all of us vote Republican or vote Democrat and he 
argued that not only is that not the case, but that that is even going to worsen the existing problems we have justices get, getting justices confirmed because it will be viewed as a purely ideological process. And as recently as you know, 20 years ago, that was not the case. Justice Scalia received over 90 votes for confirmation, which is unimaginable today. Justice Ginsburg received over 90 votes for confirmation. Again, completely unimaginable. And that is one of those constitutional norms that we have lost as things have become more partisan. Question whether judicial expansion is going to make that trend even worse. Yeah, that's a good point. So as the Biden commissioner, has anybody considered kind of alternatives to the expansion or the court packing idea? That was one very useful role of the commission is that it didn't just look at court expansion, but it looked at a number of alternatives for court reform. One was term limits, the notion that rather than a lifetime appointment, we have a lengthy 18 years was what was mooted uh, term for each justice. Now, they noted a number of problems with that, including the fact that that is one issue that is addressed in Article 3 and that trying to impose term limits probably would require a constitutional amendment, which appears very unlikely in the current environment. They also looked at a mandatory retirement age for justices, uh, but that also has concerns. Number one, uh, there are age discrimination nuances to it, but number two, it also won't necessarily address, if you view it as an ideological diversity problem, uh, a, term, or a, a mandatory retirement age would not necessarily address that depending on who's in office when someone has to retire. And then finally, a, a retirement age really would worsen the existing trend of appointing someone younger and younger and younger so that your appointee is on the court as long as possible. And there's a real concern that – you know, we're getting justices with lesser and lesser track records, not only to try and get them through a confirmation process, but also because, frankly, we want a young person that's going to be there forever. And it sounds like if you had term limits, the confirmation hearings would sort of be odd infinitum, right? It would just – they'd just be going on all the time. Absolutely. And – you know, particularly if there's an attempt to nominate someone where the Senate is in control of the other party, without it being addressed in a constitutional amendment, the opposing party in control of the Senate could basically run the clock on that person's quote-unquote term. Right. So we've talked a lot about the Biden commission itself. Other than what we've already talked about, did they come up with any other conclusions or recommendations? Well, one thing that they did address was what I would call nonpartisan options to improve the quality of the court. And they looked at issues, for example, as the lack of a mechanism to address conflicts of interest. Right now, a justice may recuse himself, but there's no real formal process for determining if there's a conflict of interest that would necessitate a justice should recuse himself. Another issue they looked at is the transparency of the court, making video available, addressing the so-called shadow docket where decisions are reached without formal opinions or without a lot of transparency into how the court got to that. And one of the things that came out of this process that I thought was a very useful perspective for looking at this is assume that you actually agree with the decisions the court's reaching. What would you do to still make the court better? Because if your basis for reform is simply that you don't like the decisions, there's a strong likelihood that when the majority shifts in the political spectrum – 
you're going to get reform the other way to get decisions that the other part likes. But even if you like the decisions, what is it the court could do better? And the commission did offer some interesting suggestions on how you could reach that outcome. Can you give us a couple of them? One is a mechanism for more formally looking at conflicts and the concern that a justice might not find grounds to recuse themselves, but that in a controversial issue or an issue where an impartial fact finder might find an appearance of impropriety, there really is no mechanism to take that person out of that particular vote. Uh, The other issue that did come up was the transparency of the shadow docket. And that is an issue that's gotten some increased attention as decisions were made on some of the COVID restrictions and mandates without the benefit of formal briefing. And there was an argument that at the very least, you should formalize the process for making a decision on that expedited shadow docket rather than doing it through full briefing and oral argument. The other recommendation that I think is is coming is the notion that we really should be videotaping these and making the arguments, not just the transcripts, but video and the actual recording of the arguments available to the public. That just seems like an idea whose time has come. Sounds like the focus is on transparency in a lot of ways. I think it's transparency, and I think there was a recognition that the notion of court expansion or the other alternatives to change the ideological composition of the court are controversial on all sides of the ideological spectrum, as I think you know the comments by Ginsburg and Breyer indicate. It's not just people who are in the majority right now that have a concern about changing the composition of the court. There's a legitimate concern that that'll undermine the court's legitimacy and it'll set future precedent. And so while the committee was not or commission was not able to come up with recommendations on court expansion or term limits, they were able to reach agreement on more, I would say, conservative, not in an ideological sense, but conservative and practical reforms that might address concerns about court legitimacy. Good stuff. Interesting. So I think we're about out of time, Greg, but at the end, we always ask our guests if they have two or three uh, takeaway thoughts that they'd like to give our guests before we sign off. So... I'll turn it over to you on that. I would say first that it's interesting that it sort of reverses the normal ideological and interpretive arguments, but I think the majority position would be that expanding the court is probably constitutional, uh, that the plain language and original intent favor the ability of the legislature and the executive to alter the number of justices. There are arguments to the contrary, but I think the majority position would be it's constitutional. Number two, I think the majority position would also be that there are strong practical and legitimacy arguments to make against expanding the court and that court expansion is not a Republican versus Democrat issue. There are folks on all parts of the spectrum that have real concerns about what the impact of expansion would be on the judiciary. And finally, I'd go back to that notion of what reforms would make sense even if you agree with how the court is currently ruling and focusing on ways that we can make the court more legitimate and also, and this is a hard ask in the current ideological environment, how can we reduce the perception of partisanship and facilitate the nomination and confirmation process so that we don't have these ideological divides that create the perception that everything the court does is based on Republicans versus Democrats. 
Craig, I really appreciate you being here today. Uh, this was a really fascinating topic, and uh, hopefully we can have you on as a guest in the future, and maybe we even do uh, an NFL draft special. So we appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Post Combine. And once we have some free agency behind us, I'm happy to address team needs and uh, likely first-round targets for anyone who wants to ask about their team. Okay, it sounds great. Okay, so to recap our three takeaways from today's discussion, first, that if the they wanted to change the number of justices, that it would probably withstand a constitutional challenge. However, there are a lot of practical reasons against it, and so it's probably not going to happen given uh, where things stand today and based on those uh, uh, practical reasons not to do it. And finally, you know, the real focus should be on really sustaining and ensuring the legitimacy of the court and trying to uh, see what can be done to get rid of the partisanship that is threatening it or has invaded it to some extent already. So that wraps up another episode of Shoveling Smoke. Thanks again for checking in with us, and we hope you listen in next time. Shoveling Smoke is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer and audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Thanks for listening.